Hello and welcome. As this is being released on Veterans Day, I would like to start by paying special tribute to all those who have worn the uniform and those that currently find themselves on the watch. Thank you for your service to our great nation. Yesterday was also a very special day for Marines past and present. It was the 246th birthday of our Corps. No matter where Marines may find themselves serving our country in far corners of the globe, here on the home front training and preparing for the next deployment, or like myself, having put on a different uniform and now standing a different watch, we all pause and reflect on service to our Corps and usually raise a glass and share a slice of cake to honor our history and traditions, those things that unite all Marines past and present. So to all of you who have earned the Eagle Globe and Anchor, I say happy 246th birthday, Marines. And now to the business at hand. So you know what's interesting is I came to this country in 1973, March of 73. I was 10 years old. When did you come to this country? Sir? February 22nd, 1972. Really? So you were just that you were a year a year ahead of me. But you stayed in New York. So I landed in Boston. We went on to California. We didn't, we you didn't landed in to... Boston? Yeah. <laughs> I prefer to just forget that. But here's the other interesting thing. You were born in I was born in, uh, in the Azores. In the Azores. Yeah. So I was 10 years old. I think both of our parents came here looking for a better future for their family and their kids. So you stayed on the East Coast and I went to the West Coast. So let's see, 70. So about 12 to 15 years later, I was back in New York, mid 80s, working with the recruiting station there, trying to find a few good men and women. And that's when you decided to join. So once again, our paths crossed. And here we are, 30-some years later. Equipping our Marines with the gear and ground combat equipment needed for the current and future fight is the responsibility of Marine Corps Systems Command and its supported PEOs. Overseeing the acquisition of boots to body armor, JLTVs to ACVs, and all of the unique technologies in between requires a unique and flexible leader. I'm honored today to host the individual who is responsible for nearly 3,000 acquisition professionals, both civilians and military, who make the magic happen to ensure Marines have the tools and the capabilities needed to be successful and as safe as possible on the evolving battlefield. A native of New York and a diehard Yankee fan, that's probably an understatement in my part. Sir, it's truly an honor to have you here, Brigadier General A.J. Pasajan. Thanks for joining us, sir. And first off, happy birthday. Yeah, happy to, happy birthday to you too, Manny. Happy birthday, Marine. Hoorah! So let me ask you a little bit before we get started. I, I've got a few things I want to ask you about. But first of all, why did you join the Marine Corps? I remember watching on the news in October of 1983, mm. the bombing of our barracks in Beirut. And I was young. I was... Uh, 15 at the time and it really pissed me off it pissed me off that something like that could happen uh, I've watched the way that Marines cared for their fellow Marines bringing Marines out of the rubble mm -hmm. on those stretchers 
and the the diligence and urgency that they paid to their fellow Marines, even knowing that some of them were beyond saving. Right. It just right. struck me the way that you watch these uh, these these people care for one another, and even though it was from quite a distance, you know, I, you know, I remember thinking, "Wow, these people are living a greater purpose." Mm-hmm. It wasn't until a few years later, and I got a, some teenage sort of, you know, uh, frustrations out of my system that I realized <laughs> that 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 was something that was necessary in in my life, and it was uh, sort of a a centering sort of, I think, moral kind of mm-hmm. calling. I didn't know it at yeah. the time. But that was definitely part of the part of the issue, part of the drive. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I was down in uh, Albany, Georgia, in '83, and uh, it you still remember those uh, horrific images to this day. What's it like to lead a, an acquisition team? We're here to talk about acquisition, so let's let's just jump right into it, sir. Well, first, it's an honor. It's any time you're in command of anything, especially as a marine, and I'm biased as a marine. It's a complete privilege to to lead. And it's not something you take lightly. It's a, it's a, a happy burden, is what I would call it. It is a ton of challenge. It's a ton of, I think, solemn responsibility, first and predominantly to the Fleet Marine Force. We've all been out there. We've all served and noted things that were missing, whether they're material in nature or training or facilities. And as any Marine, you, you don't want to, you know, forego any opportunity to improve, enhance, and make better our given situation. So we're really in a unique spot. We're in a unique position here to make remarkable advancements in this command. So it's an honor, it's a privilege to, to be able to sort of tap into resources, whether they be people or uh, financial or, or just energy and vector, you know, focusing people on the right problem to make a difference. That's an honor. And there's quite a bit resources at our disposal. And uh, so you, you, you know, you, sometimes you pray and you, you (laughs) seek some higher guidance and Mm -hmm. higher, higher, uh, you know, intervention to to make sure that what you're doing is um, ideal or optimal for, for the people and the output. So I got to take you back a little bit. You just described a I think the awesome responsibility and sense of duty that you have to, to lead this team. But I got to take you back a little bit. Did you ever envision yourself being where you are today? No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. I mean, uh, you know, I, I, the, the career track that I happen to undergo suits me, I think, perfectly for this privilege. It's, uh, you know, when you combine the, the diversity of assignments and training combined with fleet experience. You know, I'm a, I'm a loggy who went to graduate school at Monterey for an intermediate level school, studied information technology from mm-hmm. an engineering vantage point, did my utility tour here. Um, and then right after that was deployed and deployed to OIF and uh, took advantage. You know, I, I paid back to the payback kind of right, thing. Right. Some people call it paying forward. Uh, but whatever it is, you see this compounding series of of benefit that I think comes to the Marine Corps. Uh, but I I never would have envisioned. You know, my thought was I'm going to go to Monterey, Silicon Valley's hopping in the you know mid to late 90s. 
I'm going to get out of the Marine Corps, make a ton of money, write a book <laughs> like Bill Gates, you know, and it's going to be it's going to be fantastic. Uh, and alternatively, I think uh, we've helped make a difference in uh, in the Marine Corps through, you know, the 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 tragedy of 9-11 and to what became a protracted fight, you know, the global war on terrorism and, and the violent extremist organizations behind that. So I think we made uh, quite a bit of progress in helping Marines get through all of that. Mm. So privileged, again, to get into a different phase of it from, from this point forward, of course. So the Marine Corps is in the middle of a generational modernization. What role does uh, Marine Corps Systems Command play in that? And, and again, from you know you're you're leading this awesome team and and we're at a crossroads but uh what's our role here well I, you know i i really like to view of our role the as our commandant put it recently um in one of the most recent visits he made here to the command the way that the commandant marine corps understands it and describes it is pretty simple you know cdni and the rest of headquarters marine corps and the fleet too participates in experimentation and in the development of a design that we know will make us a more relevant naval expeditionary force and readiness going into 2030. It's 2021. We're a couple of years into it. We're making good progress. The Commandant used this command, though, as the the uh, instrument of Headquarters Marine Corps mm-hmm. that brings force design to life. We're the ones who actually, uh, you know, derive tangible and and deliver, derive and deliver tangible solutions to the fleet marine force, like things that you can touch, things that you're trained on, things that you um, can uh, get sets and reps on to make yourself a more proficient, more professional uh, warfighting organization. Uh, That's an incredibly uh, powerful role to play by going kinetic, as I call it. We take it out of the, the drawing board and the design room and we, you know, out of concepts and we move it into reality, which is pretty cool. It's an art, not a science to do some of that. But oh, absolutely. It's a lot of fun. Absolutely. And then just walking the, the process uh, the entire time from an idea and a concept to, you know, perhaps doing some research and development and some of these things. And then, uh, as you mentioned, uh, ultimately feeding or, you know, fielding it to our Marines. Uh, so speaking of fielding to our Marines, I mean, we've done a lot over the last couple of years. Uh, can you touch a little bit on, you know, our efforts as far as modernization? I mean, we know we have, a, you know, we're focused on 2030. But what have we done in the last couple of years that you'd like to share with us? I mean, I think at its very essence, the Commandant's guidance to us is to enable a different, more... Um, relevant role for the Marine Corps in a, in a joint and naval fight. Mm-hmm. So we, we're in a position to do some really productive things uh, as a stand-in force inside the weapons engagement zone on behalf of a fleet commander. So this is a MAGTAF commander attending to targets and fires, uh, potentially even ISR and reconnaissance, counter-reconnaissance actions in support of a fleet commander. This is a different role. So the Commandant turned that around in, in quite quite a bit. And uh, you can argue uh, a 180 out shift. There are elements of that that we used to do if you look at island hopping and the way that we mm-hmm. did that in uh, the Second World War. Uh, but 
fundamentally it represents a like you put it manny a generational change mm -hmm. you know in the meanwhile you you know we, we remain america's 911 force in readiness and what does that mean that means fight tonight you got to be right, ready right. to go tonight as we know marines are posted at embassies all over the world uh, we've got Marine Expeditionary Units that are afloat 24-7, 365, responding to crisis, non-combatant evacuation operations like the ones that we just saw in Afghanistan mm -hmm. at Hamid Karzai Airport. And that means they need to be ready and equipped with the latest and greatest gear that gives them a complete competitive advantage. So we've done quite a bit in the last two years to give them that. Tonight, the Marine Corps enjoys uh, a new... 556 five, round. It's the enhanced performance round, the EPR. It is extraordinarily accurate and lethal. The uh, rifle that which all of the Marine infantry is firing um, that round is the infantry automatic rifle. We have pure fleeted the entire mm -hmm. United States Marine Corps infantry with that rifle. There are suppressors uh, that have been fielded for that rifle across the Marine infantry. Uh, squad Bino. Uh, night vision goggles, literally changing uh, night to, to day um, and ensuring we have complete advantage at night, body armor, uh, squad combat optics, magazines, mm -hmm. and, and the like. All of that is not waiting for the initial operation of a Marine Latour Regiment, an EABO, and the long-term uh, destination of where we're going with force design in 2030. It's not waiting for 2023 or more wargaming. Uh, we did that very methodically, very uh, deliberately over the last um, 18 to 24 months. And it's done. It's in the books. It's ready. Marines have that gear in hand today. And we're extraordinarily proud to do that. But it's also very important to note that you know, we, while, we, while we modernize for the future, we also have to modernize today right. for some of the most basics. And it all starts with the individual Marine, um, and that's important. That was actually my point. I mean, it, it, it seems to me that you've centered everything around that, you know, making that individual Marine a more lethal, combat-proven individual able to, to do what they need to do. There are several critical capabilities that are obviously key to Force Design 2030. Can you share with us uh, some of what your priorities are for the, the coming year or so as far as capabilities? I, I know we've gotten things like Nemesis off the ground and a few other things. Um, yeah, long-range fires and anti-surface warfare uh, is important. There's a unique opportunity because of our, our positioning as a stand-in force and as a uh, resource inside the weapons engagement zone to to conduct fires and anti-surface warfare missions to affect sea lines of operation and uh, I think that's really important the enabling capabilities that surround that are things like persistent uh, intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance um, resiliency through the electromagnetic spectrum for uh, communications and uh, broadcasting of data necessarily uh, necessary to achieving some of those fires missions. Um, I believe that we should focus our energy today on the very basic data strategy that's necessary to accomplish those mission sets. Uh, 
So I, I think of it as, you know, what what uh, uh, our current deputy commandant for information, Lieutenant General Levy, describes as, you know, the worst day imaginable on the first island chain. Right. And that that means austerity. That means very basic, rudimentary data that's required mm -hmm. to do. Um, I think three basic things: shooting, moving, and communicating. So the shooting is through nine lines. Uh, the movement is through uh, maneuver, and your ability to maneuver really comes from situational awareness, um, and that comes from position, location, information, and then and then last, communicating largely through tac chat and means that are going to be efficiently broadcast up and down the chain of command, you know, starting at somewhere like the platoon, maybe company level, and then going up into the battalion and beyond. Those three functions, I think, are, are important, but deriving specifically the data elements down to, like, the bytes mm -hmm. um, is really important in order for us to architect the, the, the data backbone that's necessary to, to throughput that, that capability. Other prevalent issues or technologies are things like artificial intelligence that are making their way into um, every element of uh, our warfighting domains, whether it's intelligence or fires, and uh, the advent of uh, a different way of employing uh, electronic warfare and electronic attack is uh, incredibly important to uh, disrupting an adversary and enabling uh, our forces uh, instead. So it's an exciting time. Uh, most of it necessitates working with the other services. Right, right. And we do a lot of that between the Army, the Navy, and, and even the Air Force regarding celestial uh, information systems and capabilities. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, the world has gotten much smaller. We've gotten much more connected everywhere you go. But, uh, but obviously, as we get connected, uh, we also come up with problems, the cybersecurity uh, for instance, uh, it's got to be a challenge, not just from the, the IT perspective, but pretty much everything you do. It is. It is. And, you know, cyber has its uh, basis. Uh, what I learned at, when I studied this stuff at uh, the Naval Postgraduate School, it has its basis in what we call software. It's, mm -hmm. it's very ambiguous. It's, it's not necessarily a tangible thing. So we have... Uh, you know, uh, a little bit of a delay in understanding, I think, uh, you know, cognitively what that means. Um, our adversaries don't, mm. um, and that's an exploitable avenue. So uh, the risk management framework, the RMF, in my view, is a traditional approach as to how we can contain that risk. Uh, that's, that's been a highly centralized uh, concept and where we centralize the authority to operate some of our systems, I think that technology has passed us by. Oh. And it's time to rethink and reform you know, risk management framework, to your point on cybersecurity. As any good PM, we, we take risks across the technical spectrum, whether it happens to be on uh, the development of a, of a capability and its performance or its performance in the cyberspace. Uh, it could be in the physical domain or in, in the uh, cyber domain. Either way, uh, we're trained professionals and we've got a lot of resources at our disposal. We ought to be making some of those risk decisions. I don't think it should go to one central authorizing um, agent 
for for issuance to the fleet marine force there's an awful lot that we know when we conduct our testing right, in and right. around our labs and our um, ecosystem of uh, defense acquisition so I, I think that's one area we can move a lot faster in and make better informed decisions in the process quick question if i could uh, change the topic a little bit uh, obviously we we do a lot of things but you know at the end of the day we are stewards of taxpayer dollars uh we have to account for everything so support from congress is critical uh obviously to the success of force design and ensuring that you have the budget you need to execute the programs can you tell us i mean do you, uh, how often do you interact with the hill and what's been their feedback to uh our current modernization effort? I've had, uh, I think in this year, I've had three engagements with, well, I shouldn't say that, probably more, about five mm -hmm. engagements with uh, professional staff members or um, members who have asked um, about our progress and how we're doing and our intended actions on uh, the force design programs or force design writ large. Uh, there, there are questions from this command, and I think mostly from, from headquarters, uh, eventually uh, return to a very basic uh, call for how's, you know, what, what is your plan? Is it a defensible right. plan? Right. And if we're engaged, if we're in a uh, legal binding agreement with a, uh, you know, member of industry, the staffers and the Congress wants to know how the contract's doing. They want to know, you know, what the status of the contract is. Uh, you know, are we getting what we're paying for? Right, right. And do we intend to then deliver, um, you know, that, that production representative to the fleet? Or are we going to go ahead and do further testing before ma making sizable or scaled investments? So I think, I think what they're asking for is completely rational, it's logical, and we try and report the basics. I think having key communications with, with uh, you know, the, the staff and uh, the members of Congress is essential to what we're doing because they, they obviously uh, will finance a well-engineered and disciplined plan. And, and I think that we have that in... Uh, you know every program that we put forward so we're happy to talk about it and, and look to see to get you know more engagements and their consensus that we step along the way and they're talking to industry and i mean you know they're they're talking to their constituents who are in industry so industry plays a critical role in 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 our partnership uh and providing solutions to most you know some of our most pressing needs uh what's been the feedback from industry and what are we looking for them to you know, continue to support us on this modernization effort? Yeah, the feedback from industry is, how do I uh, increase my communication with you, mm. largely? And that's been sort of eye-opening. When I first started hearing that, that was uh, somewhat sobering, uh, but also really welcome feedback. We don't get that kind of, you know, very honest feedback for whatever reason at times and so i was really happy to hear hey we need to up our collective game and how you all are communicating your desires your needs to the industrial right. base so we they want to know where they're going to put their their resources and, and 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 do some you know spend their irad money to 
figure out what's coming down the pike in the next four or five years. So. That's right. That's right. And they, and you know, and, and for a lot of good reasons over the years, whether it was through sequestration or, you know, the, the, the global recession, we took a very inward look as to severe budget pressures and mm-hmm. severe uh, cutbacks and downsizing, call it whatever you want. Um, and it probably put us at a uh, different place regarding our communication strategy with most of industry. Uh, we we went from doing regular advanced planning briefs to industry right, right. to doing very dis, you know discreet and select industry days devoted instead to a point solution like a very specific program. Uh, so. I think it was sobering news when I heard that from a couple of industry partners who had told me that, and it caused me to, you know, come up with an action plan that ensured complete and open communications with industry. Since then, I'm I'm really proud to tell anybody there's not a meeting that we'll turn down. We'll take a meeting if I can't uh, accept it personally for whatever reason, calendar, travel. Mm-hmm. Uh, then I'll make sure that the appropriate expertise is there, at least at the kernel level, so that we, we gain some honest feedback and, and connect on it. That, that's great, great news. And, and I think the other thing, too, is so small business is a critical component of a lot of what we do. Uh, and, and often at times, many unique and sometimes revolutionary capabilities uh, are found in small business. What's been your experiences in dealing with small business? And, you know, if I'm a small mom and pop, out there, you know, what advice do you have for me? Uh, how can I get my technologies in front of you? Small business innovative research, our Sibbers uh, mm-hmm. uh, capability, that program is an incredibly, uh, uh, I think, lucrative approach if you're a small business who's facing obstacles to entry uh, otherwise into the traditional defense acquisition at least a perception that mm-hmm. it's difficult to, to enter. Um, nowadays, uh, there are other transaction authorities and uh, prototyping, competitive prototyping phases that are and options that are open to us by some new statute in the recent uh, uh, actions by Congress that allow us to enter into OTAs with non-traditional, smaller business. But hub zones and other disadvantaged business mm-hmm. operations are really advantageous for us. I think, you know, it brings a, re- a really competitive uh, labor market. It brings a competitive uh, business market in um, certain uh, industries where it's advantageous to actually uh, enter into into contracts with uh, with a, a very capable uh, workforce. So some of the the experience that I've had in there involved things like body armor and right. ballistic systems. Right. Uh, we included systems that, uh, that prevent, um, you know, the, the concussive effects that have to do with traumatic brain injury. Uh, but they are uh, really capable at, at um, putting out products that, that have the, a life-save, life-saving capability uh, from what I saw. And can, can, you can broaden your, your uh, production base pretty quickly using those small business or, mm. or hub zones. Um, that was the experience that I saw. There are other high-tech applications like water purification, atmos- atmospheric capturing of water that I've seen some small business do some remarkable work. Even in energy, in energy savings, a way to recharge um, lithium-ion technology 
that comes out of this small uh, business sector can be an advantage for us. So I've seen remarkable progress there in the recent years. And I know I, I've worked closely with our small business team, and they do a lot, a lot of outreach to uh, to ensure people have the information. They so, do. It stimulates yeah. competition, yeah. and I think competition on any scale is a really right. good thing. It's the backbone of this nation, so right. we ought to do more of that. And especially when you when you stimulate that in a small business sector, mm -hmm. man, you get some innovative thought, and you know some some. Uh, uh, people who weren't, you know, entering the market uh, the day prior to to come in and 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 make some uh, interesting proposals that you probably wouldn't have seen through some of the larger, uh, you know, industry partners. So it's it's a good way of, of of kind of exploring everything available to us. A lot of things have come out of people's garages. That's right. And yeah. I think we'll continue to see. Of yeah. course, I can't say that. Not a whole lot's come out of my garage, but no, uh, that's good. Right there, <laughs> you can bleep that out if you want to. I think it's fun and it's exciting. And the but you know, the better part of that is you you know kind of laugh. But my point is we'll leave we'll leave no stone unturned. So you can you can find your solutions uh, through the other services, letting someone else do the really hard part of this uh, work, which is non-recurring engineering. You want someone else to do all that R and D. Mm -hmm. You want to just reach in and benefit from from the matured technology. Right. Uh, sometimes, uh, you know, you'll, you'll find, I think that some of that is, is available in a smaller business environment too. Often at times, uh, you know, acquisition is a team sport and you, you sometimes refer to the three amigos. I was wondering if you can elaborate a little bit and give us a better understanding of what you mean by the three amigos. Yeah, so capability development and delivery, ultimately, you know, I, I kind of look at it as a big chunk of force development for the Marine Corps. That involves three uh, basic uh, uh, protagonists, you know, in, in a process. It, it starts with what the Commandant in his planning guidance calls a, uh, you know, very disciplined, analytical, and thoughtful uh, wargaming and experimental phase in uh, a campaign of learning. That's our Marine Corps Warfighting Lab. That's that's led by the CG there, who's uh, Brigadier General uh, Ben Watson, who is a uh, very dear friend. And, uh, you know, they conduct a methodical and thoughtful approach as to what will put through science and technology lanes. As uh, the Vice Chief of Naval Research, he has a, uh, a vital role in the, the Department of the Navy's Enterprise for where we uh, reach in and grab technologies like that um, and experiment with. Um, some of those will uh, achieve the maturity and the fidelity and requirements that come out of the second Amigo, and that's the Director for Capability Development um, in uh, Capability Development and Integration, uh, just uh, about a mile and a half up the road, uh, down the road from us here, in Quantico, and uh, that's Brigadier General uh, uh, Eric Austin, who is also a very dear friend. And you know what he he and his guys will do is validate that capability, and uh, plan and uh, initiate the programming process for the the financial strategy that's required to to uh, get that into a legal binding agreement in this command and our uh, our affiliated PEOs. So we're the third amigo, if you will, and what, what I would offer you is 
not everything will will uh, stand the test of time. There are some right. science and technologies, uh, you know, and, and experiments that are not going to be validated because they lack the fidelity, they lack the resources, and they don't compete as well as some others that enrich every fabric of war, of the warfighting domain. So we ought to be highly selective in what we pull across and, uh, you know, deem to be the most impactful. Uh, but doing it with Marines that you've known for, uh, you know, decades is really, uh, again, going back to the, mm. the uh, you know, uh, the, the burden and the privilege of, of command is it's just amazing. And it's actually a lot of fun. We're, we're really good friends. We're close. Uh, we talk a lot. And... Uh, I it's, understand. It's the time that, of your life, you know. I understand there's time. activities that go on at a, a little cul-de-sac that you all. Yeah, we get together. You know, the our kids normally play in the cul-de-sac, but it it's seems like, that you know the generals come out there and take up take over those parking spots in the cul-de-sac. <laughs> well, I'll I'll tell you, it's a lot of fun being a general officer, and uh, you know it, there is a lot to be said in something like that. I mean, there's. Uh, 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 a, again, a unique opportunity to affect the trajectory of our Marine Corps. Holy cow. And we take it seriously. We, we have a lot of fun in the process. At the end of the day, egos are completely set aside, mm -hmm. and we do what's right for the institution. That all happens right here in Quantico. But the, the right. beauty of that is, you know, in other organizations, whether it be commercial in nature or, uh, you know, other defense departments, agencies, and services, you're doing that in all corners of the continental United right, States or maybe right. the globe. You know, we do it right here in the little town of Quantico. And <laughs> for that, I think it's it, there's an advantage. You know, there's a advantage and there's a very close-knit uh, camaraderie and esprit de corps that you, that you leverage when you do something like that. But you combine the totality of our commands and the organizations and you you quickly start to uh, recognize that our reach is really only limited by our imagination. So it's it's a uh, it's a load of fun is what I would say. I <laughs> uh, hope the beeper's working. Yeah, me too. Uh, <laughs> I don't care if it's working or not. You can broadcast that all you want. <laughs> I got to ask you, sir. You've been the commander now for uh, a little over three years. Uh, I know you've had many goals and, and objectives when you took the helm, but uh, can you share with us a few of your more memorable accomplishments? And is there still a few things you're uh, focused on? I really believe um, uh, that, you know, thanks for that question, Manny. That's really awesome because we've worked really hard. Um, I think one of the, you know, the most important resource going in any organization like this has to be your people. And the intellectual capacity that goes with the people is our most prized advantage when it comes to the global competition uh, that we're facing today. And I'll put this workforce uh, ahead of the line any day. Uh, we recently established our own human resources capability inside of this command. That was a long, hard uh, fought uh, objective. We we worked at it. Um, I'm talking to previous commanders of this command. Uh, that was something that we we tried to do as far back as uh, three plus decades ago. So over 30 years ago. And the fact that we achieved that is testament to uh, Miss Leslie Ferguson, our uh, uh, most amazing uh, you know comptroller, and uh, she she leads 
ultimately one of her divisions is our, our human capital and management uh, division. Just extraordinary people who have an impact on, you know, people who, and Marines who haven't yet even joined this organization will benefit from that investment in the acknowledgement of the, the specialized skill set and talent that's required to execute this very important function known as Marine Corps acquisition. That's something that I'm, I'm really proud of. Another incredibly uh, prideful moment we, we just achieved this month. Well, uh, a few weeks ago in October, uh, but the Commandant of the Marine Corps signed a Marine Corps order on Marine Corps acquisition. We wrote it. We and here in this command, we worked very diligently over the last uh, over a year with all of headquarters Marine Corps. And the reason this is remarkable is our last Marine Corps order on acquisition was confined to the internal conduct of acquisition to this command. Right. This one goes outside of this command. It leverages what the Department of the Navy puts forward for instruction, the DOD, and of course, law, what law says that we must do. And we, uh, we described all of the various transition points in and amongst the Marines and the Department of the Navy. I think it's an incredibly uh, deep-reaching document. And what I tell senior leadership is, I don't think you can appreciate, you know, the long-lasting benefit of what we just did. <clears throat> but if we uh, articulate the authorities and the responsibilities that each element of Headquarters Marine Corps performs and this command, our PEOs, maybe even other PEOs, in the pursuit of you know, tactical advantage for that individual Marine, holy cow, we can make uh, a lot of speed and streamline, you know, flash to bang for uh, for fielded equipment in uh, in the meat hooks of Marines, as we say. Uh, but those two things are probably at the top of my, my list. The materiel and how quickly we field some of the uh, newest technology that's changing, literally, I think, changing mm -hmm. the, the, the globe and impacting elements uh, of, of the world uh, as we know it, uh, I'm extremely proudful of, but not as proud as I am of, you know, the, the way that we've architected those, those other two things, especially starting with the people, because people will make it all happen at the end of the day. I got to touch on that Marine Corps order, because I'd been stationed at Quantico a few times before, uh, and I couldn't even spell acquisition back then, but I realized when I first came on to this acquisition thing uh, is that, you know, you had to spend the first 20 minutes of your conversation explaining what Syscom does yeah. and, and, you know, what we bring to the table. I'm maybe a little biased, but I think that order is going to go a long way to give a, given a broader understanding to the rest of the Marine Corps of the things that we do here at, uh, at Systems Command. Right. And so. then, and then, you know, the, the other part of it, Manny, is, is we also lay in the other um, headquarters Marine Corps offices who also have a very solemn mm -hmm. and critical role in the process. So they contribute to that process in a very meaningful way. It's incumbent on us who, you know, we're at the, the action end, right? We're the ones who bring forces onto life. Since we're the ones who are, uh, you know, going kinetic, I think we owe it to them at the onset to tell them how they can best contribute and help the cause because if it's a teamed approach, if, we're, if we've got unity of effort and we've aligned our resources and we're all sort of operating in the same, you know, vector, we'll get there a whole lot faster. It'll be, it'll be uh, a whole lot more efficient, 
and then you know you'd probably uh, get a lot of laughs at it in the meanwhile it, it, it's, a, it's a good way to, to think of it sir i gotta tell you i i, I think we're we're about time but we're not going to let you go uh quite yet this has been very insightful uh it's always a pleasure having a conversation you're usually yelling at me about the yankees or something yeah and we didn't get a whole lot of of yankee stuff in here no but no sir i i thank you for taking the time sharing some of your thoughts and 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 uh, some of the things that we're doing here at Marine Corps Systems Command. But before I let you go, we do have one thing we like to do here, and that's our lightning round. Okay, I'm ready. Let's go. Drum roll, please. So first off, <laughs> what's your favorite duty station? Camp Pendleton. I really had a great time at Camp Pendleton. It was just... Uh... thought you were going to say Monterey. Well, but that's close. Yeah, Monterey's close. I met my wife from Monterey, so ah. she'll probably be at the very top of my list. Uh, but Camp Pendleton was uh, extraordinary. You get to deploy to a lot of different places out of out of that particular location, and uh, uh, Southern California, Southern California. It's hard to <laughs> it's hard to dispute anything further from that. But I will have to say, I probably take an alibi. Um, my my wife and I met in Monterey, so there's a romanticism. That okay. goes with the Monterey Peninsula, and for that, um, I'm I'm deeply grateful for you reminding me of that. Thank you. <laughs> Do what I can to help. So normally, my next question would be about a book, a TV show, but I'm going to call an audible here because we just wrapped up the World Series, and our teams weren't in it, but that's okay. Yeah. Uh, but not as really. a, it's not well, okay, you okay. know, as a diehard Yankee fan, I got to ask you, what is one of your favorite memories? And I'm sure there's many. But is there? Yeah, one of my favorite memories. Uh, and you mean in a World yeah, Series? In a World or Series or playoff? Um, more a, a World Series or a playoff sit, situation? Yeah, because I, mean, I, I believe the Yankees have a few World Series. Yeah, there's there's yeah. a there's a couple of there's a couple of big uh, uh, sort of walk off wins. One was when Aaron Boone hit a walk off home run against the Red Sox in 2003. I don't want to hear from anybody. Thank God you don't have the mic <laughs> if you're from Boston and you want to tell me what's going on in 2004. But that represents a void in my heart. It never <laughs> happened. Um, in two, in 1970, 1978, uh, you know, I was um, 11 years old, and, and our our uh, our school teachers at St. Aloysius in Brooklyn said, "Hey, we're going to give you guys the rest of the day off to go home and watch the playoff game." It was a one-game playoff at Fenway Park, oh. and the Yankees were trailing pretty much the whole game um, until late in the game, Bucky Dent came up and hit a home run that proved to be the go-ahead and the winning run. Uh, but for that unsung, unlikely hero of a guy like Bucky Dent to hit a home run in Fenway Park and uh, bring uh, you know Kyle Stremski to his knees in left field <laughs> was probably the most gratifying moment in my life to this day. Other than meeting my wife in Monterey, was All really, right. really, really, really glad you so, got that in there. Yeah. Now you know I'm gonna get a lot of hate mail from Red Sox fan, but that's okay. We'll yeah. we'll deal with it. Just don't give them the mic. Ever. I, I'll, I'll try not to, yeah, sir. They don't deserve uh, it. I do have to ask you. So our number three question: If you weren't doing what you're doing now, what would you be doing? If you weren't a Marine, what would you be doing? I'd be working uh, either uh, somewhere in New York City. Uh, I think as either a uh, fireman or a police officer. I, okay. I got Service. a lot of friends. Yeah, I got a lot of friends who who did that uh, line of work. I think I probably would have been drawn to that if it weren't for the Marine Corps. 
Um, my, my close number two to that would probably be I'd be working in a front office as a traveling secretary for the New York Yankees in the Bronx. <laughs> but I'd have to be invited to do that from a couple of friends that I know. In, I in hear a, I, I see a Seinfeld episode coming on. Right. You know, you and George Costanza I out want there doing his job. <laughs> <laughs> and I want the, uh, I want the uh, you know, I want the spacious bathroom that he oh, absolutely <laughs> from the Steinbrenner family. Uh, yeah, that would be my goal. Uh and lastly, I gotta ask you: If you could have any superpower, what would it be? I'd probably, uh, if I had a superpower, I'd clone myself and uh, divide myself equally amongst uh, my wife and children, <laughs> so I could spend all of my time. My wife probably wouldn't like it, but my—I know my children would. But uh, they're probably the most important aspect of my life, and I love spending time with them. And I wish I could spend, you know, um, all day with uh, with them you know, each and every day. It's it's the most fun in the world. Being a father is probably one of the most gratifying um, things that I've ever uh, been exposed to. And it's it's really uh, a lot of laughs. And it's something that I, I wake up and uh, savor and relish every single day. So I'd probably do that. That one caught me a little bit off guard. Thanks. I got to tell you, I couldn't agree with you more. And yeah. uh, you get to live it again once you become a grandfather. So as yeah. somebody who recently did. Congratulations, so, man. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Sir, this has been enlightening. Yeah. Thanks again for taking the time to join us. Yeah. And uh, hopefully we'll have you back uh, at another time. Yeah, I appreciate it. Bring me back and uh, we'll have some more fun to go. Simplify. Hoorah. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. Well, this concludes another episode of Equipping the Corps. I hope you've enjoyed our conversation today. If so, please take a couple minutes, leave us a review, subscribe, tell your friends about us. Till next time, Manny Pacheco signing off.